let's hear from the International Council on Development and Learning's new board president, Emil House, and he's here to tell us about an upcoming event on June 2nd and 3rd, 2023, called Diversity is Phenomenal. Edu360 Foundation is delighted to host, with the support from ICEL, the symposium and the concert, all about creating awareness towards neurodiversity. First off, we are going to have a much-anticipated symposium. The symposium will basically bring the community of practice together. The much-anticipated Diversity Phenomena concert will also be on the 2nd of June, where we will bring talents together, neurodiverse talents, to celebrate the wonderful gifts of neurodiversity. Do you know what's brilliant about this event is, especially the concert, we are showcasing the wide variety of talents. When you think about music, when you think about comedy, when you think about dancing, when you think about art, we are accommodating and showcasing the unique talents of neurodiverse individuals in this event. ICDL.com, at the top, orange banner, diversity is phenomenal. You're listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Welcome back, listeners. I am Daria Brown, and this week I am thrilled to have Dr. Karen Levine, who is a developmental psychologist and a DIR expert and training leader based in Maine. She has a private practice specializing in treating young children, both neurodivergent and neurotypical, with a focus on anxiety and phobias. She also has a part-time appointment as a lecturer in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She will be teaching a course for ICDL, the International Council on Development and Learning, next month called Treating Fears and Phobias in Young Children, an Individualized, Interactive, Joyful, Play-Based Approach on Sunday, June 11th at 4 p.m. Eastern, 2023, which I'll put a link to in the blog post for this podcast. Welcome, Dr. Levine. Well, thanks so much for having me, and thanks for helping me get this stuff out to families who can hopefully benefit from it. Well, as as our listeners know, I facilitate the parent support meeting every Monday for ICDL, and the questions we have every week that you have the answers to made me realize, okay, wait a second here. We need to ask Dr. Levine um, and get her on this podcast because what you do is exactly the answer to what a lot of parents have questions about, such as my child had a bad experience with a tooth and now they won't brush, we we can't brush their teeth. We can't go to the dentist. Um, My own son had medical trauma at age two. And to this day, if he sees a Band-Aid, he freaks out, he he pauses in his steps and he looks at the person wearing the Band-Aid and he says, what happened? because he had numerous IV changes as a two-year-old. So he does not let anyone come near him with anything. Um, Getting any kind of vaccine is a real, real, uh, took us 45 minutes to do the COVID vaccine and it was a big struggle. And the second it's done, it's fine. So it's this anticipation and leading up to like this fear and anticipation and then he's fine. And other kids who have had some kind of illness. And then they have, again, all of these fears around things that were fine before. So this is the type of work that Karen does. And uh, I can't wait to get into it. Where would you like to start? 
Well, you you raised so many interesting points in telling about your your son and the and the vaccines and the medical trauma. I mean, in COVID, obviously, every kid practically who I see was getting vaccines, and so we did we did tons and tons of vaccine treatment. Um, and you're so right about the anticipation. I even had had one very articulate boy explain that to me. He said, before it, I was so scared. And as soon as I had it, I felt so good. You know, I mean, kids can, kids are aware of that, that it's beforehand. Uh, I, I was, my father was just telling me yesterday, they took their child to have a vaccine, big buildup, lots of anticipation, but they'd done a lot of play and she got through it, you know, and then instantly she was thrilled. And then she heard the father scheduling the next one. It was something she needed a series of. And she got right up there in anxiety again, which just it just really brings home that it's the anticipation. She was much fine, much better with the vaccine itself than hearing that another one was scheduled. It's like it is the anticipation. But that's why there's so much that we can do around it, because it's an emotional thing. It's not the physical pain of these things. I mean, they hurt, they're uncomfortable, whatever. They aren't fun. But kids can tolerate, kids' nervous systems can generally tolerate the physical discomfort of teeth brushing or band-aids or vaccines or or whatever it is. But it's the emotional piece. And that's what, you know, affect is all about. You know, that's where, where we can have such an impact um, in work and play with kids on, on their emotional frameworks. Other examples that I know that Dr. Levine has and will cover in her course, I encourage all parents to take it and certainly practitioners as well to work with your clients doing floor time around this stuff. She's going to give examples and the the course is only $39 for parents. I mean, really, it's a steal. So I really hope um, that parents will be able to attend and that you're, they're not listening to the podcast after the course happened, <laughs> but um, that it'll be offered again, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, things like kids that are terrified of hand dryers in public bathrooms, kids that have fears around different types of foods, whatever it is, how did you get into this work? And what 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 were the dots that you joined together to say ah this is this is the field for me well um before i uh, became a psychologist i was a toddler daycare provider and then i learned so much about kids and the range of kids and and many toddlers have tons of fears just kind of developmentally that's the age they're afraid of so many things and they're just starting to play and pretend and interact in, in more and more complicated symbolic ways. And so I what I loved about working with the toddlers was, was working on their fears and distresses and making it super playful and super fun. You know, a lot of them had separation anxiety to begin with, so they'd be upset saying goodbye. So we do lots and lots of goodbye play and play it out and no, no, don't go. And I would be the kid and they would be the parent. And um, and so okay, I found myself- we need myself- to elaborate on that later but go on okay I found myself really getting into just for fun for me but getting into playing with kids in that kind of way through whatever their issues were and I found the kids eating it up really enjoying it and then sometimes not always but they wouldn't be so scared um and so um, you know, and then I became a psychologist and then I encountered floor time it's like ooh, these kind of things are very um, convivial. They go hand in hand there. I call this approach very floor time adjacent. You can sort of incorporate it into your floor time sessions very easily. 
um, the adult has a specific agenda, but they're centering around how to work on it through the child's interests, through the child's lead. Um, and one thing very interesting is most kids are fascinated by the thing they're also scared of. Same with adults. I mean, that's why scary movies are popular, like Halloween movies or whatever. We're terrified, but we have one eye partially open because we're dying to see it. And kids also find these topics very interesting. So in a way, we're pulling from their interests. So when I started doing floor time and working with autistic kids and kids with Williams syndrome, which is the other uh, kind of area that I specialize in, um, I found that this same general kind of approach was fun to do and interesting to do and, and very often could really treat kids' fears and phobias. The other reason, selfishly, I like it is you can really see progress often quite quickly. So as the as the therapist, it's incredibly satisfying. It's like, wow, yesterday we couldn't go to a birthday party. Today we can because they're not scared of the happy birthday song anymore or whatever it is. Um, so you can really uh, make a difference um, and you can help parents make that difference, which is, you know, incredibly satisfying um, to feel that to, to sort of see progress before your eyes like that. Well, I'll tell you, I really, really needed you um, 10 years ago when my child started nursery school because I was every nursery school or teacher's nightmare parent who stayed and waited at the doorway at the top of the stairs while in the, this particular um, daycare uh, nursery school thing that he was at was in the basement of a church. And I, you know, the doors close up the stairs. I'm waiting there for two hours or two and a half hours. Oh. And anytime I hear him cry, I'm like running down. Like, like I was the most anxious, overprotective parent ever, probably partly because of my personality, but also because of the medical trauma he'd been through. It was mm -hmm. like, I can't bear to see him suffer anymore. Like I was just the worst. <laughs> I was the worst. And so he would just have the worst separation anxiety ever. And this will apply to everything we're going to talk about now, parents listening. Um, we tend to walk on eggshells and avoid anything that our kids are going to freak out about because we just don't want that meltdown. We just can't stand to see them so upset. And Karen's going to give us this other amazing alternative, which is doing the opposite of that, visiting and facing that fear in the face, which is what we're most terrified of, but doing so in such a playful way that it's fun for everybody. So I think that was super insightful that you knew that back when you were in uh, daycare work that you instinctively knew instead of saying, oh, come, come, you know, like distracting the child into look what's here. Look at this cool toy. Instead, you, you focused on the, oh, goodbye. I don't want to say goodbye and playing out the child's fear. It's, it's brilliant. And Dr. Neufeld, <laughs> I, 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 I follow a lot of Dr. Gordon Neufeld's work in Canada, and he's a developmental psychologist too. And he says the same thing. He kind of calls it like immunizing the child to what they're scared of by inviting like the inevitable. So saying, we have to go to the doctor today and you're not going to like it. You're going to cry and you're going to scream but I'm going to be there with you. And, you know, that sort of idea, not necessarily saying it all verbally like that, but. Right. Right. And oftentimes you'll see in social stories, that page is left out the page of you're going to hate this and be really terrified. And, you know, <laughs> it's like, what happened to that page? We skip of then they'll get, then you'll have a shot. Um, 
so I, but, but kids can, um, and sometimes, you know, the standard treatment, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT includes what they call gradual exposure, where you gradually expose the child to the thing they're afraid of. Um, and sometimes that's done very similarly or the same as what I do, but sometimes that's done in a way that induces distress. And, and I just don't think that's right. And I don't think that's, you know, the way to go. Um, I don't think it's necessary uh, in terms of helping a child not be afraid. So in, in my approach, if a child starts to get afraid, you back off a little and you add more playfulness and fun, and then you come back in uh, and do the, do more. And I remember in, I think it was engaging autism or one of Greenspan's radio shows, he talked about frustration tolerance, where you really let the child set the boundaries and figure out where those boundaries are by doing just what you said, like approaching the boundary. And then if they show that you go, Oh, Oh, sorry. Oh, that was too much. And you back off. Exactly. And those of us who do floor time know that in, in intuitively that's, that's attunement. That's staying very attuned which doesn't mean that you never sort of push the envelope, but you stay attuned as you do and know, oops, I went too far, too fast, too realistic. Let me back off a little and and zip up the, the playfulness, you know, um, shore up your alliance with the child by increasing the playfulness. And that also decreases their anxiety. Well, Dr. Go. Tippy calls it having your foot on the gas and the brake at the same time. That's a nice way of putting it. Exactly. Right. That's a good way to put it. And I think of sort of two sliders with this one. One slider is how realistic you're getting or how much gradual incorporation you're doing with the fear thing. And the other slider is how playful, um, how super fun you're making it. Um, and you can go up and down with both sliders. I, I like that analogy. I used to DJ a college radio show and you know, those you'd have to adjust exactly. all the levels. <laughs> I think right. Virginia Spielman and I, uh, occupational therapist, talked about that in our podcast where she talked about the individual differences being like that board where, you know, some are dialed up, some are dialed down, and you have to figure out what the profile is for each child. Right, exactly. And you do the same in this kind of work, you know, in terms of how you pace it, how loud you make it, what sort of thing is funny to this child. Some Lots of kids love sort of slapstick humor. We can all kind of grasp that. But some kids don't think that's funny. They think that's anxiety provoking. So then you use a different kind of humor. Some kids like loud, super funny. Some kids like sort of a little bit silly, but not too much. So I don't want to get overwhelmed. So you really have to tailor it to their individual differences. And um, Cindy Puc Puccio. That's her name, right? Yeah, um, she did her dissertation on humor and floor time, and she talks about humor as an individual difference, as another one of those individual differences, which I think is a nice, helpful way to think of it. Yes, I did a podcast with Dr. Puccio, and I will put a link to that in the blog post for this podcast. And also, you presented with her and Dr. Tippy at ICDL's conference last fall on humor and showed some of those examples of using humor. So um, that was a wonderful presentation as well. Right, we were talking about different ways of different uses of humor. And she was talking about using humor in floor time. I was talking about using humor in working on anxiety and phobias. And Gil talked about kind of humor in the media and humor as a broad concept. So we tried to pull that together. And I love how he tied it in with the functional emotional developmental capacities. That's right. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Exactly. So when you're using humor to treat fears and phobias, 
you don't necessarily want to use the most complex level of humor that the child can access. You want to use their favorite level of humor. So if it's a kid who loves puns, you want to use a lot of puns. If, again, if it's a kid who loves super silly wrong things, you know, that are a little taboo, like you can have your character jump into the trash can if that's funny for that child. Whatever's funny, often at an easier level than maybe their highest level joke that they might be able to grasp. Because your goal in this kind of play isn't to necessarily increase their um, FEDC at that moment. It's to help them stay relaxed, stay non-anxious as you gradually incorporate the thing they're afraid of. Now, I'm thinking that the title for this podcast might need to be The Missing Page, because as you mentioned, in those social storybooks, <laughs> the right. part that's the hardest is The Missing Page, and, and you're going to give good. us a page. Do you think we should walk through a specific example? Maybe we should talk about the video with the blood pressure cuff. And, and then... will that be a video that you will share in the course? Yes. Okay, so um, people that want to see the actual video, you'll have to attend the course because it's a, a you know, protected video. This was a child like many kids, like your son, who had a lot of medical trauma and was terrified of having their blood pressure taken. Even kids who haven't had medical trauma are, often are very scared of medical procedures um, for all kinds of reasons. It's physically intrusive. It's unusual for a strange adult to intrude on your body in that way. Often adults are a little stressed. Everybody's in a hurry. Um, there are all kinds of reasons why it's super stressful for kids. Um, and a lot of kids develop or have fears of these kinds of procedures who, but, you know, obviously more, especially kids who've had any kind of trauma. So and not only, not only that, but if I'm not mistaken, you said that this child, because of their medical condition needed to get repeat blood pressure tests, like daily, weekly, or whatever it was. Exactly. He needed to really have it monitored. Um, like many kids who've had medical trauma, they need to keep on having medical procedures or, um, so, so that's a common state. Um, and then, and it's incredibly unpleasant. So he was terrified. So they couldn't get an accurate blood pressure read because he'd always be in, in a total meltdown or total panic state, um, when they were trying to do it. Um, his father was an EMT and they had, which, which meant they had the equipment at home, which is very nice. But I highly recommend if you're trying to work on something, a medical procedure with your child, that you see if you can borrow something from the pediatrician's office, or you can order a lot of, like you can order um, empty syringes quite inexpensively on Amazon or probably get them from CVS if you can't get them from your pediatrician's office. Because the more you have some of the real equipment, sometimes you can get stuff they're throwing away, like if they're throwing away broken um, stethoscopes or something from your pediatrician's office, you can get stuff. Because the real equipment is another level of reality that if your child gets used to and okay with, that's one less stressor when they're in that situation. So this child um, uh, had Williams syndrome, and it's a, that's a genetic syndrome where the kids are super social um, and tend to have tons of anxiety and a lot of phobias. And a lot of medical phobias is common, probably because they often have a lot of medical issues, cardiac issues especially. Um, so we were meeting at a Williamson convention where I was working on this, this whole approach. Um, and the mom brought him and their blood pressure cuff from home that he was already scared of even the box. He knew what was in the box. So I wasn't about to start with that. So I, and I explained to her how it works and she was with me as we did this together. Um, and I really like doing this kind of thing together with parents. Sometimes parents can just go and do it. And that's great too. But sometimes because parents have had so many um, 
intense experiences with their child around the issue, it's helpful to have a third person there who doesn't have that history. Because sometimes, it, like you say, you get nervous in the situation sometimes, like the like the separation. Um, and parents gear up for their kid getting upset. It can it can be hard to keep an even keel. And kids have such radar out for parent anxiety. Um, so it can be helpful to sometimes have a third person, th neutral party involved to sort of manage the play and the affect of it. Kind of like with floor time sometimes too. But sometimes parents can can do it just fine too. So anyway, the mom met me and we we were working together. This was in a hotel room at the convention because that's what we had set up. Um, so it's not lab circumstances. And um, she brought the blood pressure and I brought some dolls. She brought his doll and I brought my doctor kit. So we started off with his doll and a toy blood pressure kit, a toy blood pressure cuff. And you start off at the at the level of reality that's not going to be scary for the kid at all but that kind of introduces the topic and then we just did some floor time play basically back and forth um but i was uh my agenda was i was going to play around with fear i was going to have my doll be afraid or be okay and see how he responded and then he took my blood pressure with a toy blood pressure cuff and see and i pretended fear and he was fascinated the first time i said don't do it no he looked at me and looked at me and said, again, like he wanted me to show him again. What does that feel like, that fear? And sometimes people ask, you know, are you teasing the child when you pretend fear? And I'm, I'm like, no, I'm not teasing them. I'm validating the message I'm hoping they get, which they seem to get is, is this how it feels for you? Is this what it's like? And then the way he looked and said again, it's like, I know that feeling. That's the feeling I have. So I think that's the message he got. So then he did it again, then he did it again. And then he would say, you're okay, it's okay, you know, because kids will clear often be the reassuring adult. And um, he's repeating what he's heard adults say to him. <laughs> right, exactly. I was seeing a family the other day and they said the, the older sister who has all the phobias can reassure the brother all the way through whatever he's afraid of, you know, it'll be okay, we're right here, you know, and say all those things. But when she's in the situation, it doesn't generalize. So so we started off with with the with the doctor kit and his dolls switched to my dolls, switched to him taking my blood pressure. Then he got interested in the um, dial that goes around, you know, for the blood pressure um, on the toy one. Um, and he was interested. So we looked at the numbers and how that worked and you push it and it goes fast and slow. And then we pulled out the one that his mother brought, the real one, just to look at the dial. And he was interested in that, which was great. It's like, yay, he's not afraid because we're not trying to take his blood pressure. It's a whole different situation, whole different context. Um, so he got very interested in, in that dial. And then I put it on my arm and he was interested in that and he was okay with it on my arm. And then I thought, oh, maybe he's ready. We've done all these steps. We've done the pretend. We've gotten him comfortable with the real one. We've worked on fear of fear. Um, so I started to put it on. Was this all in one session? Yes, this was okay. like... And, and the video is not two hours long. I excerpted little bits, but this is like two hours in a hotel room. So not your typical. M normally, this might have been three sessions, let's say. Okay. We have found that one in the in our research study, we often did. Um, we did like three sessions in three days and sometimes within one or two sessions that are long enough it, for kids who can stay engaged for that. You know, we come and go and have snack a little bit, but you can work on that. For some kids, it's better to spread it out and spreading it out or doing it all at once seems to have about the same impact from my experience. We haven't studied that, but that's been my experience. 
Okay, so I thought he was already, I, I thought we'd sort of, I call it unbundled the various aspects of the experience. So we'd worked on fear, we'd worked on the whole process, we'd worked on getting comfortable with the real blood pressure cuff. And so I, he was over with his mom. So I suggested to her, why don't you try putting it on him? And he got, he was like, no. And he started to get scared. So we we're like, okay, let's go down the reality a little bit um, and up the fun. And, and I was thinking what aspect is still there that he's scared of. And I realized I hadn't helped him gradually incorporate the feeling of it on his skin. So the feeling of the cuff itself on his skin, which obviously feels a little weird when it goes around you and bulbs up. So um, so I started with it on his shoes. Let's check your shoes, blood pressure. He thought that was funny. So I made it more funny and less scary. And he got a kick out of that. And then, then I said, you say no. And he said, no, and I'd throw it away. And then I said, let's check your knee blood pressure on his pants. And he's no. And then I kept working my way up his body, which I've done with a lot of kids. And, and he got really into the no and laughing with me together. And we were having a great party around that. And then... Um, when it got closer, uh, as as I did it each time, he was getting just a little bored with this game because we did a lot of times and he got interested again in the squeezy bulb. And so I showed him the squeezy bulb and then, um, then, then I was able to put it on his arm too and he said no and then he said squeezy bulb. And, and so then we just basically wrapped it around his arm and squeezed and then he went to his mother and she did it a couple times too and by the second time he was dancing and singing while it was on his arm and we're like whoa <laughs> so we made it all the way and isn't it incredible how just taking that time to prepare the child and to play with it and get them to get used to the everything which we don't nobody does that like think about it's it's no it's no mystery why our kids are so traumatized when they get into these situations because it's brand new to them and they don't know what to expect. I think about the one time I had uh, a tear in my hip ligament and I had to go get a needle and then they did some kind of MRI or whatever. They had to put like green gunk inside my leg mm -hmm. and like it was terrifying. And, and I was like, why am I so scared? Like, it's just they're just in, but it was terrifying. And I'm thinking like, if you're a child and you have all these people and lab coats and medicalized place and the hospitals are like fluorescent lights, you know, I'm thinking like, wow. So it seems like what you do seems like it should be so obvious to everybody yet people don't do it. And so I hope this podcast will spread far and wide so people can get their kids in a playful situation where they're used to it so that when they get to the real thing, it's not so scary. Right, exactly. I mean, it is amazing. We expect kids to be able to do these things at all. It's like asking them to do long division when we haven't shown them what a number is, you know, it's like, there's so much that can go into it. I think some kids are able to, uh, kids who are able to co-regulate, who don't have kind of natural anxiety, who are able to use language a lot to help them regulate. Um, sometimes can get through these things without such difficulty. But if you have trouble with the communication, with the language to the point where it's not totally enough to help you co-regulate, um, and you, if you have trouble kind of picking up on the cues in your environment that, oh, this is safe, these people are okay, I guess, even though I never saw them before. And if you, don't, or if you aren't sort of prone to anxiety anyway, um, then you may be able to get through some of these situations. Um, although it's certainly, I remember we did the, the first COVID shot, we were in a, a car line. So we got to see everybody 
in front of us getting shots, which you don't always get to see. And um, I could see kid after kid falling apart and screaming and crying and hear them. I was like, I should set up a little boost before the shot. You should have. <laughs> oh, wow. That must have been hard for you to watch too when you right. know how to help them, but you can't. <laughs> right, exactly. Sometimes people ask, does it generalize? So they, the child in your office or one session with their parents, they're doing okay. What about the next time they go? And, and sometimes it doesn't generalize. Sometimes you have to do a booster shot of that kind of play and which I recommend doing before it comes up again anyway. Um, and, and then sometimes the kid's baseline anxiety is already up. Maybe they've had a bad day and they're hungry and not feeling well and tired. Then you might see the distress again. But I always say, if you could get them over it once, you can get them over it again. And it's usually much quicker the next time to do that kind of thing and much easier because they've been there. They know that feeling. They know this is a situation where I've felt okay. So they it's almost like the opposite of PTSD, they have PG, they have good feeling memories of it. Um, so they can do it. Uh, more. My son has a dentist appointment in three or four days. And so I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I'm going to play with him the next few nights at bedtime around it, or maybe bedtime's not right because he's super tired and he's had it at the end of the day, maybe in earlier in the day is better. But one wonderful thing that the dentist has done with him is let him sit in the chair, move the chair up and down. And then the thing that squirts water, she let him grab it and squirt water all over the place, even though oh, it made a mess. But he had so much wonderful. fun squirting the water and then gets a little more comfortable being there. They have a big screen TV with his favorite cartoon playing, which also helps because he's distracted, but also comfortable watching his show and he's still very anxious sometimes it takes up to well last few times not 30 minutes but it did before take 30 minutes and luckily she had the time before she would he would even let her like scrape one tooth right you know (laughs) and it's little doses because then he needs a break and and just empowering him by saying let us know if you need a break and he'll say break like okay and then sort of go at his pace that's wonderful. And letting him play around with the stuff. And so he can own it and feel powerful and in charge and not feel like just the scared victim of it is just terrific. And also, I'm sure the water had a lot of laughter in it, too, spraying it all around and getting oh, yes. in that laughing state with the dentist or the tech person or whoever. That's like that haircut video that went viral that I just love when the when the guy doing giving the haircut to the boy with Down syndrome who had all kinds of sensory issues. And he, he said, break like that. He said, anytime you want to stop, stop. And the boy said, stop. And he stopped, like almost made it funny how quickly he stopped. And then he did it again. And the boy said, stop, stop. And each, and then they started laughing and laughing. And once the boy was in a laughing state with the guy doing the haircut, he was good with it. He was fine. It, that kind of shared humorous state can override the mild discomfort, relatively mild. I'm sure it's quite uncomfortable for a kid with sensory issues, but compared to the joyfulness it's again more of an emotional discomfort than it is the physical discomfort the emotional discomfort is much harder for kids to manage than the than that degree of physical discomfort usually and as you mentioned because the parents are so stressed about seeing their child stressed the the child picks up on the parents stress as well right exactly and one reason i usually uh include playing around with being afraid you know you play fear you have your figure play fear is because that's the sort of almost taboo issue, yeah, the unspoken issue. And parents are 
parents don't want their kids to be afraid. Understandably, we don't want to hurt our kids. Um, but but in a way, this makes it okay for everybody. It's like, yes, there is some fear involved. This is kind of a scary thing. Um, but I think it putting it out in the open, let's put it out there and play with it as opposed to put it, pushing it under the rug. I think that makes it makes fear less scary for the parents and for the kids. Now, I know you mentioned in passing what we just talked about. You said something about the research. I understand there has been research on this method. And did you want to talk a little bit about the work you're doing with the university? Sure. I mean, there's lots and lots of research on cognitive behavioral therapy and on gradual exposure as a way of treating phobias. There's lots of research on that with kids as well. So that's not a new concept and we know it basically works. It's, you know, what we would call getting used to something. Kids can get used to things. Um, but doing it in this way with lots of humor, there's there's very little research on humor in kids at all. And humor in kids around anxiety, there's almost none, kids or adults. Um, but uh, because I did so much work with kids with Williams syndrome, I was presenting at a conference once some videos and this kind of talk like I'm giving now. and um, one of the researchers, Bonnie Klein-Tasman, who's a anxiety treatment researcher at University of Milwaukee, also specializes in Williams syndrome. And she saw my work and she was like, we should get a grant and study this. And the Williams syndrome association, which is the largely parent group, a parent professional group, they had put out a, what the parents want research in. And one thing was treating phobias because all their kids have so much anxiety and phobias. So, um, Bonnie got a nice grant from the Williams syndrome association to, to study this, manualize it, um, and and bring some kids in and study how they did and how the process went. And so we we were doing that for a couple of years before the pandemic. And to me, for me, the clinician, I was just thrilled. It's like a clinician dream to develop an approach and have a research team take it on and study it and, you know, gradually turn it into evidence-based, um, just like with floor time. But um, so we were doing that a couple of years before the pandemic. And then when the pandemic struck, we had kids scheduled even in March and we had to cancel it all for a couple of years. But what the group managed to do is make a website. It's still being beta tested, but that has all these videos for certain things. So clinicians can go in and say, oh, I'm working on hand dryer phobia for a five-year-old or something. You can go in and do that. So that's in process. It's almost done. It's quite nice. And it tells about this, the whole approach. And then in the... We did, we wrote up the patients that we had done this with um, during the pandemic. So that got published a couple of years ago. Um, and they were quite nice findings. Like I said, some of the kids got fully treated in just a few sessions. It was really just to manualize it and to document how it's done. But we were happily uh, surprised to see how much progress kids made. You know, one boy came in terrified of vacuum cleaners and by the third day, he was vacuuming the whole hall, <laughs> you know, with great joy. Um, we had a lot of situations like that. The boy terrified of hand dryers. And actually, yeah, by the third day, we were able to make a field trip to the university bathroom with the hand dryers and we were putting scarves in them and activating them. So not everybody made that much progress, but a lot of the kids did incredibly well in, the, in progress in a fairly short time. And so this we is already published? Yes, that's published and I can send you, you can put a link to it or however you want to do I that. will do that at the blog post for people listening or watching. Yep. Okay, Wonderful. Great. So tell us a little bit about what parents and practitioners can expect from the course on June 11th. 
So I'll be going through sort of similar to how I've done in the podcast, but I'll go into more depth with each component. And then I'll show some videos of me working with different kids, uh, some from my research studies, some from my practice um, on, the, on using this approach. Um, so I'll, I'll make, and then I'll talk a little bit about my thinking about why kids, um, neurodivergent kids are more prone to having more phobias um, in terms of less ways to easily access natural co-regulation. Um, so it's, it's similar to now, but just with more detail and more in depth. And then if we have time, we, I can do some um, Q's and A's as well. Um, and I'll cover some specific um, fears and phobias too. And then for those parents that attend ICDL's parent support group, which is open to parents around the world for free, uh, Dr. Levine will be our guest on Monday, July 10th at one o'clock PM Eastern. And that can be a Q&A, a post-course Q&A. To, right for people that have seen the course yeah right no that'll be great and the one thing I haven't really stressed in this maybe enough but I it's certainly obvious when you see the video and it'll be obvious when we do the parent group is that each child is different as we know from those of us doing floor time from thinking about individual differences um, and so the exact approach and how you do it is going to vary for each child it's the the principles are the same just like for floor time you can't say Oh, here's what you do. You get a bucket and you get two balls and then you say, put the ball in the bucket. It's like, no, that's not how you do it. <laughs> you play with the child and see what happens with some ideas in mind of what you do. So that's how this works too. Um, very individualized. I was I was explaining to some parents yesterday who their child has a fear of dogs and I was showing them with my dog puppet. I said, you know, she likes dog dog stuffed animals. I said, oh, you can make the dog pretend to pretend to run up and lick you. <laughs> And as I was showing them my puppet coming up and licking me, they were like, that would scare her. And I was like, well, then we wouldn't start there with her. We'd start with the dog just being all friendly and then work our, work our way up to that. So, um, so that's where it has to be so individualized and how scared a child is of which aspect of how much pretend is gonna hugely vary too. Every once in a while, I've accidentally scared kids, but I, it's rarely happened. And when I do, I just back up and we're all good again and then, and then go forward. Um, but usually you can tell when you're getting towards there and then back up. And I always say, if I, I'm working with parents, which I always am when I do this, I say, let me know, because you know your child's tell. You can tell when they're, because some kids just get quiet and I may not be able to read that and a parent will know, oh, I think they're getting a little scared, you know, so especially on Zoom, I don't always have all the, all the cues that would be useful. Oh, okay. So you just said on Zoom, does this mean you also do virtual consultations? Yes, I'm all virtual now. Actually, oh. most of my most of my patients okay. are in Massachusetts from where I used to live. Um, so yeah, I do it all virtually. And I have lots of, I have my um, toy toilet with the actual plus. <laughs> I have all kinds of props and I have um, several layers of vomit, several layers of reality that we use, depending on, you know, for children afraid of vomiting. And I use YouTube a lot on uh, Zoom too, and things like thunderstorms um, or toilet flushing or hand dryers. We we look at videos together with no volume and then maybe a teeny bit of volume and a little more volume. And sometimes kids pick their favorite toilet flush. We can look at several. I like that one. That one was better. That one wasn't scary. You can sort of get into discussion about that, incorporating that into the place. I found, I didn't know how this would work with Zoom. I also have parents buy 
or get or find or print out things that that um, we can use as props. So for parents, if the kids are scared of shots, I'll often suggest the parents buy a doctor kit, but also the empty syringes if we're going to use that. Yeah, in um, some ways I've found Zoom works well because the parent and kid are at home, so they're already not stressed and they're relaxed. And also it means that I can't make myself too much front and center, you know, which can be the tendency because I've I'm so comfortable doing this kind of play because I've done it so much and it's newer for any given parent, but I want them to be the ones doing it and getting good at it so they can keep doing it with their child. So a question I have, I know that, you know, parents and caregivers vary in their own individual differences and some have a lot more patience than others. And some have very strict expectations of their child. Like this isn't hard. Why are you making such a big fuss? And others are a lot more patient. So how do you work with the caregivers who are maybe more resistant? (laughs) Well, I would say, you know, related to this, I would say what adults find funny or find acceptable varies person to person, culture to culture, subculture to subculture. So it's important to find something not only that's funny to the child, but that's acceptable to the adult. So in some families, potty talk is fine and great. Let's go for it. In other families, it's like we're working so hard not to get them to get them not to say that. So please don't use potty talk. So it's important to really explore that a bit. And what do you think is funny? What does your child think is funny? How do you play together in a way that's funny? And some adults just don't play with their kids in this way. And sometimes maybe dad does and mom doesn't or aunt does and parents don't or something or a babysitter does. So uh, I often suggest to find the person who has this kind of play most naturally with the child. Sometimes parents want to learn it. It hasn't come naturally. Or, you know, I was meeting with a family last week. They said, you know, we haven't played like this, but I think I would enjoy doing that. You know, sometimes it's a new idea, but interesting and intriguing. And I, I was meeting with one mom explaining it to her child that all kinds of feeding issues. And she's, and I described it and do some pretend. She said, I find pretend play so boring, which which totally can be understandable, especially if you don't have a interesting agenda or you don't put a lot of affect into it. So then I showed her this kind of play and she sent me a video of it. And she was clearly having a blast, you know, doing this with, with her kids. All three kids were like, yuck, don't eat it, you know, doing that kind of play. And then they were encouraging her to eat the pretend food. So sometimes it sometimes parents are interested in learning this new kind of way of playing, but sometimes it's just so different from how they were brought up and how they conceive of interacting that you might want to, they might want another approach or they might want to find an adult in the child's life who, who has this as more of a natural tendency. So I'm wondering if um, we could maybe do a mock session where I have a phobia and you're treating me just to give an example because we're not sharing any private family videos on in this podcast, although you will be able to see them if you register for the course on June 11th, 2023, um, at affectautism.com, look under phobias, and I'll put the write-up for this podcast with links to what we're talking about. And Dr. Levine has generously given me a nice handout that I can share with people to download. So um, I'll do that as well. But before we get into that little mock session, I just do want to share for people on YouTube watching this. And if you're on audio, you can link to this at the blog post later. Dr. Levine's website is drkarenlevine.com. 
And this is um, about the services she offered, workshops, etc. And she has three books here. Um, some of them are co-authored. And I also wanted to share the this course that she's doing at the icdl.com under courses website, treating fears and phobia in young children, an individualized, interactive, joyful, play-based approach on June 11th. And it describes the course here. There are learning objectives and you can get um, continuing education credits if you are a professional looking for that. So the details on that are here on the website as well. And it says click here for prices and registration. You can see that it's very reasonably priced, $89 for professionals, $39 for parents. So I hope everybody that is um, getting something out of this podcast will register for that course. And again, the links will be up at affectautism.com. So what do you think um, based on your props? Like, let's say I'm, I have to get uh, my latest vaccine, let's say and I'm really scared. So, or, or let's say my child is scared, but my child isn't here with me right now. Um, as a parent, what would I do? Um, how how well, do I, you do that? Because I guess you have props, but then the parent also needs something. And you're sort of coaching the parent how to do this with the child on the other side of the screen. Right. So let's say what I do for the first time is kind of interview the parent. I'd say, what does your child think is funny? I'd try to get that information. And how do you play with your child in a way to get them laughing? And then I would tell them how I've done it with different kids. And, and some often, sometimes I'll give a little def demonstration, like here's my doggy puppet. And I'll have him say, I don't want to get a shot. No, no, no. Have to have your shot doggy. <laughs> you know, something like that. And I might talk, you know, would they, would your child find that funny? And they might say, no, they wouldn't. But you know, if you did that, if you gave your coffee mug a shot or whatever, they might have suggestions once I give them something to start with. So we'll kind of do a little sort of like where to start with play kind of figuring out. And I would have had the parents send me some videos of just playing with their kid beforehand. So I'd have a general idea of what kind of developmental stuff where they're at with language and pretend and, um, or I might have met with the child first, but often if I'm starting fresh and they have a bunch of fears, they want me to work on phobias, I would get some video of them just playing around with the kid. It doesn't have to be when the child's afraid, just so I can get a feel for the child. Then I would try out different play scenarios with them. And I'd always ask them what they've tried too. And very often parents have done like doctor play, but they often haven't put in the ouch, ouch, afraid part um, and the afraid beforehand. And then it feels better part. And then I'll, I'll, I'll show them a video. I have videos of me getting shots, the flu shot, the COVID shot, and I'll show them those. And do you think they'd be interested in those? Um, and most kids are. Often kids will be like, I don't want to see it. And then they'll half cover their face and, and <laughs> peek at it. And I'll say, oh, well, let's look at it backwards, which is kind of funny because you see them taking the syringe out or let's look at it, a couple picture frames of it. And then after a while, most kids want to see it. And in the flu shot, I really hammed it up with the text. So it's kind of funny too. So, and then for one child that's working with, she was really resistant still. We did all that stuff. She got okay with that, but she was a real animal kid. So we, I found some videos online of vet giving shots to horses. And then I found some, you can apparently, which I hadn't known this, I was glad to know from my own dog, you can, you can get, you can give your dog's shots at home. You can learn how to do that. So that was kind of interesting. So she was, she wants to be a vet. So she was fascinated by that and watching that video. Um, so that was very useful. So we work out with the parents what the steps are, what the child thinks is funny, 
Um, and then, so when we think about unbundling, so what are the components of it? One is the whole scenario, the whole shot scenario. So that does some of that, the fear of fear. And then there's the sensory piece. So for some, the, so, so for some kids, when we have the actual syringes, you can put water in them and drop, drop the water drops on each other's arms and it's kind of tickly. You can do it on the shoulder if that's where they're going to get the shot. Um, and that gives sort of more and more closer approximation to the actual experience. So it's something coming through the syringe that gives a sensation on the shoulder is getting closer and closer. Um, and this child didn't want to do that. That scared her, but she was very willing to drink sugary water through the syringe. So that was a good start for, for her for that. So I would ask you more what you think. And then between sessions for kids I'm seeing on Zoom, or I did this when I was seeing them in person as well, between sessions, I would get parent feedback. How do you think that was for them? Which direction? Here are some options of directions we could consider next. And then the the this child with shots, the I suggested, what about giving shots to an orange? Because that's how real doctors and vets practice. And in, you know, and she's She's, this is a child thinking, I want to be a vet. So that was really interesting to her. So first they put cloves in an orange, which smelled really good, I gathered. It was through Zoom. It's like, I want to smell it. And then, then they gave the orange um, syringe shots and they had colored water so you could see the orange turning colors. And we did, we did that kind of thing. And the next is going to be, she's going to give her mother a shot with orange peel on her mom's shoulder. So it's not going to actually hurt, but we're going to mix the, the giving the orange a shot with people shot. We're working our way up there. Yes, and you did mention affect. I wonder if before we sign off, we can sort of go into that a little bit more because I think a lot of parents just feel silly doing that pretend kind of thing. So like, you know, if 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 I play, you know, this week with my son about, I know that the dentist mentioned this time for the first time, we're going to try the the... I don't know what it's called, the machine thing that scrapes at your teeth because they're just using the hand tool so far to scrape some of the whatever calcium or whatever it's called away. Um, this time they want to use the, you know, and whoa, that's scary. So, I mean, what can I do with him at home? Like I know if I'm, maybe I'm using the electric toothbrush, which we actually use at home. That's I can good. Say, That's I can good. say, oh, here it comes. The dentist is coming to clean my teeth. No, no, mm -hmm. no, no, I don't like it. I'm scared. <laughs> like that's my version of affect. Um, and a lot of parents might feel silly enacting it, but that helps the child. Like you said, it validates the fear that they're feeling, whether they show their fear in that way or not. Or I can say, no, no. Um, well, okay, let me ask you about this. If I said, I'm thinking if my my son now almost 14 doesn't like something like we, I went to brush his teeth last night at bedtime and he, he punched my arm and he said, I'm going to hit you. And of course it doesn't hurt. He's not hitting me hard. But if I, if I said, no, I don't want it. No, I'm going to hit you. Like some parents might say, don't give them the idea. Now they're going to go hit the dentist. So how do you play in that context? Would you just sort of leave the hitting out of it and just represent the you, fear? You could. It's more about the affect. So you could say mad. You, you can also make it a little funny, like speak through a closed mouth. You, you, can't, you can't get in there with that toothbrush. I'm going to be so mad. I'm going to hit the ceiling. You, you know, you could sort of playfully exaggerate. You want to make it clear that you're playfully pretending his feeling. 
that there's a satirical element, you know, I'm going to hit the roof off this house. You know how kids will say that sort of thing. And, and that's how mad they feel, you know. So you don't like when, be... like when my son doesn't want to go to school, he says, I want to throw school in the garbage. Yes, I want to exactly. throw all the people in the forest. <laughs> like, exactly. He just says these random things. <laughs> exactly. But he's trying to think what's the biggest thing. This is how bad I feel. It's the big, it's the size of it. So you could tell him that you could reenact it that way. I'm going to, I'm going to hit the, all the, hit that toothbrush out the, to the moon or something. You know, you want to get at the biggest thing you can get at. That's not, does, you don't have to take the aggression into it, or you could because he's mad at whoever's making him do this. I'm going to throw all the dentists in the forest. You could take some of his language even if he, you know, or you don't need to. It kind of depends what it evokes in him, if he can be playful around that, or if he's more likely to feel it's playful if you send them all to the moon or to outer space or something that's clearly, so clearly unrealistic. Um, you know, I was working on separation with a with a girl once, and she's pretty sophisticated and we were having, you know, we planned, we we're going to have mom walk around the block and come back, you know. And so once mom was gone, she's like, where's mom? Where's mom? And I knew her pretty well. So at that point I said, I'm thinking she went to the moon, you know, and she cracked up. She's like, oh yeah, I know. Obviously she's walking around the block, you know, and again, never in a teasing way, but in a playful exaggeration sometimes. And the more you can make it funny, you could say, no way, I'm going to fold my arms over it. You know, I'm going to put my coffee mug over my mouth so you can't get in there something like that that's that's playful and if and if you can get him giggling trying to get in there while you're like blocking him if he's if he thinks that kind of thing is funny that's sort of physical and then you're like okay just just count one tooth you know just just buzz one tooth and then just like like I you can just wash one strand of hair you know all right yes I can but, imagine that's another phobia that kids have is getting their hair washed Definitely. And sometimes kids hate the bath and hate the day they're going to have a bath because it involves hair wash. And so that's a that's one to separate out and unbundle all the elements and wash one hair at breakfast or wash two hairs or they wash one of your hairs um, and break it down. And just se just separating out bath from hair washing can make a huge difference in people's lives. <laughs> yeah. And, and I do want to stress to parents not only to come to Dr. Levine's course for sure, because you can ask your questions and she'll give you lots more examples in great greater detail and a lot of the theory behind it and, and the research that she's done. But um, it really is a trial and error process as well. So like we talked about at the beginning, foot on the gas and brake at the same time, you're sort of feeling out what works. And if it, and you know, I know I have this experience in parent support group where People will have suggestions for a parent's issue and they'll say, oh, I've tried that. And they sort of just close off any other possibilities. And it's like, okay, but it's the way you tried it. Try it a little bit differently. Try something a little different. Try something totally different. Like you got to keep trying. It's trial and error. And I know it's, it's very frustrating for parents because we're, again, we're so scared of that meltdown. And what if we make it worse? Like, oh, right. please, no, don't make it worse, right? Right. And I think, as you said earlier on, I think that there's the there's a lot of parents don't even want to approach it even in play because it might be upsetting or have or haven't approached it even with play because they don't want to needlessly upset their kids. So so few we managed to get past that dog on our walk. Let's not mention dogs until we go for a walk again tomorrow, you know, because it's such relief to that the child didn't have a meltdown this time when we went past the dog, as opposed to bringing it out in manageable little doses and making it fun and changing the, you know, shifting the child's feelings about it. Yes. Um, there's, 
there's so many examples we could go through. I really hope parents took something from this and practitioners. Uh, you could certainly do this in your practice as well. I know even just sometimes kids don't even want to go to their regular speech therapist appointment or occupational therapist appointment. It could have anything to do with anything in the building, other people there. You never know necessarily what it is they're scared of, but this method, methodology, whatever can be used in so many for so many different things so i really hope people will sign up for the course and parents will sign up for the course and then attend the post course q a at parent support in july so thank you so much dr levine um i'm really happy that there's someone like you doing this kind of work because um we need to get the word out more so we can traumatize less kids and have more exactly. fun around preparing them for the realities of life. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for, for understanding this approach and, and um, getting it out there. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And listeners, viewers, check affectautism.com under, uh, you can search the term phobias, anxiety. You'll see the, the podcast with Dr. Levine for links to everything we talked about and a free download from Dr. Levine. So thank you very much. Thank you. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. Coming up on Wednesday, May 31st from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern, I'll be holding my course, Be Sure, DIR 402, Supporting, Understanding, and Respecting the Expectations of Parents for Practitioners. Children tend to be the topic of therapeutic intervention, but a good intervention depends entirely on their caregivers. This three-hour course will explore the relationship with caregivers in the process of a client relationship. Topics covered will include the spectrum of parents, meeting parents where they are by understanding their process and their journey, and how you can be the supportive and understanding practitioner whom caregivers trust and feel confident in. This course will help you raise your awareness and build your capacity for respecting the spectrum of families you see in your practice. To see the learning objectives or to find out how to get continuing education credits, go to affectautism.com under the events tab or at icdl.com under the courses tab.